This podcast is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite online betting company. The Bet365 app lets you access pre-match and in-play markets and provides instant match updates across the biggest sports. Bet365's Bet Builder lets you create personalised bets and calculate the odds for any football match right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. And welcome along to another episode of Straight Out of Cobham, the Chelsea FC podcast from The Athletic. This is the only place to be every week as The Athletic's team of Blues Boffins break down all the latest news from Cobham to Stamford Bridge. On this week's show, we look back at the weekend's topsy-turvy tussle on the seaside as the first team have to settle for a point at Bournemouth. We'll also bask in the glory of the women's team claiming the club's first piece of silverware of the season, reflect on a Youth Cup quarter-final unlike any other and catch up with our man at Cobham as the Blues prepare for the first leg of a double date with men from Merseyside. All that plus we meet our latest cult hero on this episode of Straight Outta Cobham. Yes, welcome listener, make yourself comfortable for we're about to go on another journey through a week in the life of Chelsea Football Club and as you know there's always plenty for us to muse upon. I'm Matt Davis-Adams, I'm joined by Don Fifield. Hello. And Liam Toomey. Hello. Simon Johnson's at Cobham as we record this on Monday lunchtime. He's waiting for Frank Lampard to give his pre-Liverpool press conference. We'll hear from Simon later but first bucket and spade at the ready, we're off to Bournemouth. So once again Chelsea failed to best Bournemouth. Bournemouth drawing 2-2 at the Vitality Stadium this past Saturday to mean the Blues have taken just a single point from the relegation-threatened Cherries this season. Um, Liam, you were at the game for the Athletic. We'll get to your piece shortly first, though. Tell us a bit about Bournemouth. What are they like, sort of press facilities-wise? Did you have a nice time? I hear there was an interesting choice of lunch. Yeah, it was. it's one of the more pleasant away trips media-wise in the Premier League. I mean, the, the train's quite long, two and a half hours. It takes its time. But... It's a nice part of the country. Um, the stadium's small but quite sort of cosy, and the media facilities are, are all good. Interesting press food this time around: duck lasagna, which I, I didn't even know was a thing, but was quite nice. And yeah, we were generally well fed and watered. The only bad thing was there were about four different climates throughout the day, um, so I went in in a waterproof with sunglasses and at one point I regretted not bringing a snorkel as well because the heavens absolutely open midway through the second half. Dom, duck lasagna to me screams we've got some leftover duck in the kitchen we don't know <laughs> what to do with it. Is that the weirdest press room food you've ever heard of? Where, where ranks top of your table in terms of press room? We're, we're really doing this. Yes. Okay. <laughs> weirdest press room food. I remember Simon Jordan at Palace once refused to provide sandwiches to the press as he was cutting back on costs very early in his ownership back in the early noughties. Wherever you go, you get some pretty weird food at Chelsea's, but it's always absolutely incredible. I mean, that is proper silver service, isn't it? The, they can the be buffet. quite left field at times, but there's always, yeah, yeah. and there's always choice as well. That's the key. I always found it confusing at, when, when you cover England at Wembley, the FAs or the Wembley catering staff always used to put on a spread that paid homage to the sort of national dish of the team that was visiting Wembley. So you get, you know, England play Mexico, they put on Mexican food, presumably not make it as as well as the people make it in Mexico. So here's a poor imitation. Yeah, of where exactly. you come from. How they felt about it, I'm not 
quite sure. The weirdest press feed experience I've had in this industry was a few years ago at Watford pre-Potsos when they were in the championship and uh, they were still renovating the stadium at the time. So the the media room was, it felt like a sort of disused bungalow. There was no furniture in there, just a few sockets around the corners. And as you went in, you were just handed two polystyrene cups, one for tea slash coffee and one for your soup. And then you were sent on your way. We shouldn't we shouldn't complain. It's amazing we get food at, <laughs> yeah, at all. Yeah. I'm still stunned that they feed us. <laughs> Honourable mention from me to Hull for their pies earlier this season. They were really good. Uh, anyway, there was a game that we should talk about <laughs> against Bournemouth. Uh, Chelsea should have been behind early on. Then they went ahead through Marcos Alonso before conceding twice in quick succession after the break. Alonso then rescued a point with a late leveller, but probably should have won it thereafter. Uh, Liam, two points dropped rather than one gained, even though they came from behind. Yeah, weird one, because Bournemouth were talking as if it was two points dropped for them as well um, afterwards. Chelsea started both halves really badly, and they got away with it in the first half. Uh, They managed to survive and ended up going 1-0 up, but the second half they were completely punished. And as against Bayern, one goal conceded quickly became two, and there's there's a kind of... uh, brittleness to this team that should be really concerning to Lampard that setbacks tend to snowball and um, in the end it was only the absolutely bizarre uncanny goal scoring abilities of Alonso I don't think I've ever seen a player quite like him because he's really really slow doesn't have the skill to beat a man at all can't defend his position as a fullback particularly one-on-one not a fantastic not as good a crosser as you would expect him to be but an absolutely immaculate technique with his left foot and just has the positional intelligence of a forward in the final third. He actually reminds me of like a wing-back version of Lampard and knowing exactly when to run into the penalty area and then once he's there, knowing exactly what to do with it. And um, particularly his second goal, actually, I thought was even more impressive because the anticipation to meet that ball on the rise as it was coming back off Ramsdale's hand um, was really impressive and he's the only reason Chelsea got a point. Uh, in terms of the team selection, um, Simon Johnson wrote about the absence of Fikayo Tomori from the team last week. He got his first league start of 2020, looked rusty and got subbed off. Ross Barkley got the chop with Pedro coming in. The other alteration. Um, Dom, we've had a, a question tweeted to me by Jim Boyd uh, at Matt Davis Adams, if you've got a question for the show, by the way. He asks, is Lampard's squad management a concern? He's now having to rely on a lot of players he seems to have dismissed earlier in the season. Is it any wonder they aren't performing for him now, knowing they likely don't have a future at the club? I think that's a bit harsh on Lampard. If you, if you think you've got a, a system that's working and a, and a, and a group that is your first choice and that is what you go with particularly when you're competing at the in the level of competition that Chelsea have been and then inevitably when results tail off yeah you try and shake it up and that's what he's doing I think it reflects poorly on the club in many ways that the manager the head coach has been left rather too reliant upon players who are out of contract and clearly have a shelf life when you think that William Pedro Giroud are all four, four months away from leaving potentially uh, we know that Batshuayi, his future is very much up in the air, and I'd probably chuck in uh, Barkley as well in that in that capacity. Um, I mean, I wrote last week about the shortcomings of the experienced players in the wake of the Bayern defeat, and what, what is Lampard supposed to do? He has to rely on these people for the rest of the season in in anticipation of a summer of considerable change. It's not an unusual scenario for a head coach, I guess, in many respects, but at Chelsea, it is. 
because generally there's a bit more forward planning and, and, and foresight, but they've been hamstrung in that respect by the transfer ban. Uh, to your piece then, Liam, uh, your latest one up on The Athletic now, in the wake of the weekend, you're opining that Frank Lampard doesn't know his best system yet, let alone uh, his best team. Um, I was surprised to learn that 4-2-3-1 has been the one he's picked most often, 18 times out of 35. He seems to talk more positively about three at the back and strange, therefore, that it's not been his, his preferred system is that because the personnel he's had available or or he's just basically trying everything and seeing what works yeah it's an interesting one and I've had some comments on that piece with people interpreting that first line as a criticism of Lampard and it's not necessarily it's just a an observation of how unusual this situation is not just for a Chelsea coach but for any coach to not know really what his best system is and what, what his best team is and I think it's a function of the fact there hasn't been a great deal of consistency in performance whatever he's gone with um, so he's still trying to search for what works. And yeah, he has spoken positively at three at the back because it has been Chelsea's safety net at, at crucial points in this season. You know, when he switched to it against Wolves, things look pretty bleak. They suddenly get a 5-2 win, go on a seven-game win streak, um, largely playing 4-2-3-1 actually in that stretch. And, and then it helps secure the two wins over Tottenham. But there have also been signs that when he goes with that system for prolonged stretches and teams have an opportunity to game plan for it, um, the effect is lessened. And the the point of the piece I wrote from Bournemouth is that the I hope you like XG because there's a lot of stats in that piece. But So many numbers, look <laughs> at it now. I thought my boy's maths homework. I did just blurt out stats onto the page. Um, <laughs> it helps fill the word count, you know. Um, but it... <laughs> But the the conclusions really about the the three at the back system from the numbers were that it's not making Chelsea any more solid. They're still conceding goals at a very similar rate, but it is actually making them less potent in attack. Although you could say that the one positive about it, which we did see against Bournemouth, is that it frees up two players with unique attacking gifts in Marcus Alonso and Rhys James to do what they do best in the final third. And Rhys James put in 16 crosses 16 of Chelsea's 30 crosses against against Bournemouth. Um, many of them were dangerous and obviously one directly led to Alonso's first goal. So when you are struggling for goals generally, maybe you do want to weigh that as part of the equation, but it's clear that having three centre-backs is not necessarily the solution for Chelsea either. What do you think Lampard wants to play? If, if, if Lampard had been able to bring in the players last summer that he wanted at the club, what system would he be playing now? When we look last season at Derby, he often played either four two three one or four three three. You know, he'd slightly invert the, the midfield three depending on what happened. But I think ideally, what he wants is a squad capable of mixing things up depending on the opponent. When he originally switched for the Wolves game, it's because Wolves play with a back five, mm-hmm. and that was, there was a clear call to to make that tweak for that specific game. But I think what he's doing now is he's just trying to find a system that the players are, are comfortable with and delivers a level of consistency, which Chelsea still haven't quite found yet. I think he probably wants to play four at the back, mm-hmm. um, generally speaking, as the default. And four-three-three has the best numbers, um, at least sort of expected numbers, for Chelsea this season. But he doesn't really have the central midfielders to do it right now with Kante getting injured all the time. I mean, if he's picking three at the back for specific opponents, and you can, it's worked with with Spurs in the two matches. In Bournemouth, you, Bournemouth play three at the back, and you, you'd, you'd imagine that that Chelsea's personnel, man for man, would be better than better quality. Yeah, I mean, they played. Generally. The interesting thing was Bournemouth, I think, played three at the back at Stamford Bridge, yeah. but actually played, played four, four two, at, three, one at, the at home. 
I mean, I just wonder, you'd imagine now Liverpool, on the back of what happened this weekend, will pick a stronger team than they might have done otherwise. Whether that actually is a call for him to go back to, to a four rather than a three. I mean, he's going to need a bit more solidity at the back there. Yeah, maybe. And when they played Liverpool really close at Stamford Bridge in the autumn, it was with a 4-3-3 with Mason Mount operating on the left of the front three. Mm-hmm. But you had Kante for that game yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, so... I, it's really hard to know how they're going to line up, partly because Jorginho is only eligible for one of the next four games and this is that one. So he'll probably play, but who plays around him in that midfield is an open question, I think. It's part of this, Dom. Part of it is obviously because of injuries. Part of it is because of opponent in terms of the selection and formation. It's part of it also because it's kind of been forgotten that this is Frank Lampard's second season as a coach so you know he hasn't got a set way of management and getting players to play yet so he's he's experimenting not only with the players that he's got but with his own abilities as a coach. There's definitely an element of him learning on the hoof um, one year in the championship behind him and even even there I know there was a there was a, a large um overhaul in terms of the playing personnel even at Derby you could argue um, it's, it's, it's still not potentially we didn't, we didn't see his ideal system I mean he, he still would have thought you know I could I can make tweaks to this I would like to do this I would like to do that and I, he wasn't able to potentially with the budget that he had at, at Derby and at Chelsea he's been hanged on completely by the by the transfer ban I think it was very very early on it may well have been in the Leicester City draw they drew one all at Stamford Bridge he came out post-match and said look I'm not able to play what I want to play yet because I don't have the people I haven't been able to bring in the people I want to bring in that that's what intrigues me really I'd I'd love to know you know in in an ideal world if you'd had like an unlimited budget last summer um, to influence the recruitment department um, what 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 we would be seeing now what what would be his favorite system like and there's you need a bit of a, an adaptability you need that you know the potential to switch between a three and a four is is critical potentially um you know the best teams can do that but i suspect with the way or the point at which this chelsea team's development is at it's it's probably unrealistic to expect them to to be able to do that um given that there's so many young players playing their first seasons at this level i mean you you almost want the stability of of one system that you can you can fit into, and everybody knows their role and their job. And he hasn't had that at all, really, this season. Well, it seems it feels almost a bit weird to be having this conversation when last year Sarri was getting criticised for never changing the True. system, never yeah. changing the way he played. And I, it's not necessarily a criticism of Lampard that they are changing system all the time, because I think it's a good thing that he is not tied to one vision of how he wants to play. But whatever you do, you've got to do it well, and. It seems like the the more sustained returns on three at the back are not as convincing as maybe Lampard would like it to be. Well, do go and read Liam's piece for all the details on why Chelsea are performing and playing as they are. Uh, the draw against Bournemouth, coupled with results elsewhere this weekend, means the Blues are three points clear of fifth place Manchester United, having taken just 19 points from the last 16 Premier League matches ahead of Everton's visit to the bridge on Sunday. Okay, Chelsea did, of course, have another game since last we met. Don't worry, we won't spend long on it, but we will be looking back on the beating from Bayern next. There's a slip by Aspilicueta. Lewandowski pulls it back, and there's the goal, which is smashed in by Serge Gnabry. Loves scoring goals in London in the Champions League, the German international. The Chelsea mistake, punished by Bayern Munich. Chelsea nil, Bayern won. So Chelsea handily beaten by Bayern Munich at Stamford Bridge last Tuesday. The German champions winning 3-0 in the first leg of the last 16 tie. 
thanks to a brace from Serge Gnabry and one from Robert Lewandowski. Uh, in the first half, Chelsea did okay. Then Bayern put their cigarettes out, cast aside their slippers and got to work. Is that is that fair? Bayern are really, really good. Um, I think based on what we saw at Stamford Bridge, and obviously Chelsea were poor, but if Bayern are at that level, they can win this competition. They, they are one of the best teams. Um, Thiago and Kimmich just absolutely ran the midfield. It was the lowest share of possession Chelsea have had in any Premier League or Champions League game this season, less than 37%. And that that's interesting because Bournemouth did the total opposite and let Chelsea have the ball. They had their season high for possession. Um, but Bayern just completely took everything away from them. They waited for Chelsea to make defensive mistakes, which you can usually rely on two or three a game. And when they came, it was two passes and the ball's in the net. I mean, Lewandowski, I thought, was brilliant throughout the entire game, leading the line, holding the ball up, but also combining with Serge Nabry, setting him up for those first two goals. Nabry's finishing was every bit as clinical as it was against Tottenham. Uh, and yeah, they put they put the tie, you would think, completely to bed before the away leg, which is sad if you're a journalist with a flight and hotel booked for Munich later this month. Dom, I've been commentating on the, the Champions League games uh, for Chelsea alongside Pat Nevin, and he said to me, after one of the group stage games, actually, that he thought it would be far more beneficial for Chelsea to finish third, go in the Europa League and have a run in that rather than what looks to have been the case of get through the group and then go out in the, in the last 16. Do you think that there's any credence to that argument? Yeah, it wouldn't have felt progressive if, if they'd done that as Europa League holders. Um, wouldn't have been good for the club's financial accounts. No, exactly. And... and even even one one tie in in the last but look, it does make a difference just getting to the yeah. final of the Europa League. It's, a, it's a good few million, yeah. and you're obviously hosting another game as well, which makes. But a it's difference. all about the, it's the prestige of the club, isn't it? They've they've been for the last four months or three months. They've had this okay, this daunting tie on the on the agenda, but it's been there. They they are one of those teams in in the Champions League in contention. And okay, last week's defeat shows that they're not in contention to to win it, and they're not going to get into the quarterfinals. But they had Bayern Munich on the agenda. And that was on their fixture list, and I think that that, that is important for a, for a club like Chelsea. Even at halftime, with Rafa Honigstein, um, who wrote for for us last week on on that game as well, he was saying that Bayern was supremely confident at halftime that they they'd actually done half the job by then. They'd made Chelsea chase the ball through that first half. They knew that opportunities would come and that Chelsea were going to be knackered, and it, just, it simply was that. I mean, the the energy levels of Alfonso Davis down that left side. He's got Gareth Bale speed. Oh my word, he's frightening, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, that was phenomenal performance from him. And and then Thiago's running the show. I mean, let's put a word out for Thomas Muller because at halftime we were, we were we, he was the one that looked as if he was running the show. You had a quiet. He's such half, an intelligent but, footballer. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That header was so cute. Yeah, wasn't it? astonishing quality. But also, I think he did a lot of the the graft. He actually. I mean, Chelsea were chasing him for for most of that first half as well. And he was the one getting into the pockets of space and he was the one spreading the alarm bells, um, getting them ringing. And, and once the first goal went in, Chelsea collapsed. It's, it is a sobering, I mean, Lampard said sobering, learning curves, etc. But I just think it showed, I mean, the kids in that, in that Chelsea setup who haven't been there before will have learned a lot about the standards that are required. But I think we also saw that the... Senior players on show, probably their best days are behind them at that level. A clarifying experience, I think. Yeah, well, the good news for you, Liam, is that Munich's a nice city, so I'm sure you'll have a oh, pleasant time anyway. Uh, OK, that's enough wallowing. Let's talk winning. 
Thanks to our good pals at beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com athletic and pay the postage of £4.95. And as if that wasn't enough, as a listener of the Athletic Podcast, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's 10 free beers. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest craft breweries planet Earth has to offer. No surprise then that they're the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and many more, but they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave any time. The power is in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a beery snack is thrown in just to top it all off. Just go to www.beer52.com athletic to get your free case. And don't forget, right now, the athletic listeners get two extra free beers. Yes, it was an evening to remember for Chelsea FC women on Saturday as they beat Arsenal 2-1 in the final of the Continental Cup, a.k.a. the League Cup. It was held at the spiritual home of football, the City Ground, Nottingham. And the three key figures in the match, Maren Mielder, Beth England and player of the match, anne Katrin Berger. Mielder laid on both goals for England. The first put Chelsea ahead inside the opening 10 minutes. Arsenal deservedly equalised through Leah Williamson on 85, only for England to convert from close range on 90 plus 2, following great work from both Mielder and Sam Kerr. Uh, it's the first time that Chelsea have won this trophy, Liam. It's fair to say that they rode their luck to do so. Arsenal had numerous chances. Yeah, I mean, I, I watched the extended highlights of this game and, and Anne-Katrin Berger fully deserved that player of the match award. Not many goalkeepers managed to keep Vivian Miedema quiet. And uh, and Chelsea, when they had to ride their luck, they did so. And and again, Beth England came up for them when it, when it mattered. She's got great instincts in the six-yard box as well as from 25 yards out. She almost took the first one off Sam Kerr's toe, didn't she? But... Shows how keen she is to score goals. And then Kerr did a lot of um, really good sort of unglamorous work in the lead up to that winner, turning a kind of nothing ball into into a really dangerous chance. Great work from Marin Mielder, who I remember last season against PSG, she made a, a really crucial run to get an away goal. And she seems to time these bursts forward absolutely perfectly. And it's big win for them. It's the first of what they hope will be several trophies this season. And... Uh, and a, b- a big win over a league rival as well, which I'm sure is a psychological boost. Uh, and Katrin Berger, as you mentioned, some brilliant saves. Uh, what a story she's got. In 2017, she was diagnosed with thyroid cancer, which she successfully fought off. Uh, staggeringly, she was back playing for her then club Birmingham just 61 days after her operation. Clearly and understandably emotional at full time on Saturday. Um, one of those one of those moments, Dom, of, of football being the most important of the the least important things. You could see how much it meant to her to to have made the recovery and then have like a tangible reward for it in, in the medal. That is a that is a fantastic story, um, and and fair play, she was outstanding. It's interesting the whole the whole because um, I'm right in thinking that Emma Hayes actually earlier this season was all for scrapping this competition and thought it was actually diluting the <laughs> Super League. Well, it has a group stage, which is totally which unnecessary. Is odd, yeah, yeah, yeah. But look, she's, she's wrested a trophy, pretty much Arsenal's trophy, away from them, isn't it? They, they seem to have dominated this competition in recent seasons. So psychologically, as Liam says, that will have a big say in where the, where the rest of the season goes, potentially. Um, and yeah, the, the, you know, she even admitted post-match that the, the better team had lost in terms of the sort of 
possession football and attacking football that Arsenal have mastered on the day. But but resilience was key, and I think um, for her it seemed to be a, a big occasion with the sort of Brian Clough links. She she'd spoken a lot about Cloughy and admiration for him in the build up to the game. And even wore a, a green coat or something on the touchline. I think in, in <laughs> she had something green on. Her mum had talked her out of going yeah. full green jumper. Apparently, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but her sister had sent her a load of quotes from from Brian Clough, which which she thought had been teed up to to be used post match, and she she did in fact use one um, about being in the top one or something like that. I wouldn't say I was the best manager in the game, <laughs> but I'm in the top one. Yeah. There is a bit of Clough about Emma Hayes, the similar sort that's of brilliant, similar though, sort of that charisma. Is, yeah, that's and, that is fantastic. And she, you know, she's clearly such a, a key motivator for the players as well as you know tactically astute and whatever. I just worry a little bit, um, Liam, from from a Chelsea women's point of view. Now she's completed the set in terms of domestic trophies. If Chelsea win the league this year, is there a possibility of her saying, well, I've sort of done everything that I can do here, aside from the Champions League, which is so difficult for anybody bar Leon and maybe Wolfsburg to win? It's hard to know for sure what's in her head. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's the similar sort of situation to the question Manchester City are asking themselves with Pep Guardiola because she has been that influential on the development of Chelsea women over the last few years. But I remember speaking to her a couple of years ago um, Actually, it might even have been last year and it gave a good insight into how invested she is in, in the development of the club off the pitch as well. You know, they've they've got the behind the scenes documentary going on this year, which I think will largely focus on her and her personality and her leadership. Um, but she's also had a big influence on the redesign of Chelsea Women's Training Complex, which is at the back of Cobham. That's a long-term process in terms of redoing that building, but she's actually been involved in like the plans and the designs of where she wants certain rooms. And that's like Arsene Wenger, Feng exactly Shui, London Colony, isn't it? Yeah, and that doesn't sound like uh, the mentality of someone who has an end point in their mind for where they are at the club. And whenever she's spoken about Chelsea before, it's indicated that she knows. I think there aren't many clubs in women's football where she would get the same level of support and also influence to be able to do what she wants to do. Whether she one day wants to manage a men's team is is, a, is another question entirely, and she has hinted at that at, at times. But we we don't know what's in her head, but I, I, she would be a huge loss if she ever did leave. Mm. Well, Chelsea's next match is until the 15th of March. They face Everton in the Women's FA Cup quarterfinal, so the domestic treble very much on for them. OK, next up, we'll dial up Simon Johnson, who's not quite live from Cobham. Well, the most significant team needs is that uh, Chelsea are going to be forced into making a change at the back. Uh, Lampard may have done that anyway, but Christensen is out with some kind of knock picked up uh, from the Bournemouth game. The other possibility is Kepa coming in. Lampard seemed to suggest that he might give him a run out. That will be uh, very important for the world's most expensive goalkeeper to uh, show what he can do. Lampard, when he was asked about the importance of the FA Cup, I think, uh, as he sort of said all season, he wants to win every single competition. So there's no real change there. I think he knows that that perhaps it's not just about this this Cup game. I think it's about the importance of winning this game in general for confidence and, and to give Chelsea a bit of belief when it comes to the Premier League. And as for Liverpool, I got the impression that, that Lampard sees them very much as a wounded animal and would be more dangerous than if they hadn't lost their unbeaten record at the weekend. I think he's uh, fully aware that Liverpool are the benchmark and he couldn't have been more effusive in his praise for them as a, as a team and what they've achieved. And um, yeah, I've really got the impression that Lampard sees them as a, 
arguably a more dangerous team to play at Stamford Bridge than, than perhaps if they hadn't a loss at the weekend. Simon Johnson there. By the way, we aren't going big on our preview for the game, seeing as there's such a short turnaround between this show going out and the match kicking off. But we will be reacting to it with a special bonus pod out on Wednesday. So listen out for that available in all the usual places. Now, me and Liam were at the bridge on Thursday night for an FA Youth Cup tie with a difference. We'll talk about that next. So Chelsea's under-18s through to the semi-finals of the FA Youth Cup, where they'll face the team who knocked them out in the third round last season, Manchester United. This after Armando Brogia's 20th goal of the season gave the Blues a 1-0 victory over a dogged Millwall at Stamford Bridge last Thursday. Um, Liam, as I said, it wasn't your standard Youth Cup tie. Tell us about the uh, the travelling support who made it unlike a, a regular under-18s game in terms of atmosphere. Yeah, it was pretty surreal. I mean, the moment the draw was made the first clash at any level between Chelsea and Millwall since 1995. The Met Police's ears perked up, I think, and there was a massive security operation, lots of police and stewards on Fulham Road um, for what was a very sparsely attended game. You know, these youth games never have more than about 3,000 people there, but there were more Millwall fans than, um, than Chelsea fans. They were separated by half the stadium. The Chelsea fans usually sit in the East Stand on the lower tier, but that's too close to the shed where the away fans sit. So the police moved them or the club moved them to the other side of the stadium. The away end was totally full. And the Millwall fans, I have to say, were fantastic. I think they were really, really good. They, they created a, an excellent atmosphere. They were intimidating to the Chelsea players, but I think in a, in a largely good natured way, you know, there was some quite funny chants. Um, I felt a little bit sorry for Marcel Lewis. He's this, tiny little creative midfielder slash winger for Chelsea who had to go over and take the corners, the succession of corners that Chelsea won in front of that away end in the first half. Um, but they really inspired their team. You know, Millwall were heavy underdogs going into this. They defended really doggedly. They were getting battered for long spells. Their goalkeeper had a good game as well. And even once Chelsea did make the breakthrough early in the second half, what you often see with these youth games, especially in ones against Chelsea, is that the other team will be run into the ground by the hour mark. And then Chelsea run away with it and score two, three goals in the last 20 minutes. But that didn't happen. In, in fact, Millwall actually pushed in the last 10 and made it quite uncomfortable for Chelsea. And I think there was a lot of respect. As Jody Morris tweeted, that's the best group of fans I've ever seen at a youth game. And I think there was a lot of respect from the Chelsea side for how Millwall actually conducted themselves around the game. In terms of the Millwall performance, no surprise that they were good defensively. Chris Perry is uh, one of their joint coaches. Dom, I'm interested in, in your opinion on the the away support and, and how Millwall handled it because they were tweeting uh, quite frantically in the build-up, we're asking Chelsea for more tickets and they're not giving them to us and, and being quite critical of the fact that they'd had an allocation of a, of a thousand for this game. Um, fast forward to all sorts of messages about what could possibly happen and Millwall supporters saying, well, we'll just go in the home end and storm it. And, and you get a police presence which wouldn't have looked out of place for a first team game with 40,000 standing on. Is there is there a case for clubs to be a bit more responsible in the way that they use their social media or am I being a bit prissy look Millwall will have relished that fixture they know that they are a club with a reputation or that their supporter base has a reputation and I think that they as a club they do everything that they can to promote what is good with that I mean they know it's a minority that is a that is a problem um, I feel a bit sorry for them sometimes other times not so obviously there are issues um, that, that have been highlighted in recent cup ties in recent years first team level but they are living with this presumably wherever they go and they would have looked at that as an 
as probably the biggest away contingent they would be taking to a London club this season. And they, they would have, yeah, they would have loved to have had the entire end, I would imagine. And they probably would have filled it. It felt like a Millwall home game as it was. And I'm interested to know, actually, it's, it's hard to know for certain, but there was there seemed to be so many fewer Chelsea fans at that game than there usually are for this stage of the FA Youth Cup. I'm wondering whether a few of them maybe were put off by the, the talk ahead of the game. Yeah, quite possibly. I mean, in fairness to, to the club as well, to Chelsea, they, I know there are rules around if there's going to be 5,000 people or more, then you have to shut off Fulham Broadway uh, tube station at the yeah, certain entry and exit points yeah. and stuff and then, and then yeah. you're liaising with the police so it's not as if Chelsea just said you're having a thousand tickets and that I think it's probably a bit more I wonder what it would have, would have happened if it, they'd been drawn at home if, if Millwall had been, had been drawn at home whether that probably would have then become a a run-of-the-mill normal sort of almost championship policing of a match uh, for Millwall because uh, they would have they would have probably got two three thousand home supporters into that which probably would have demanded a normal policing operation and it would have been interesting even more interesting to see how, how many, many Chelsea, Chelsea fans made up. that trip. Yeah. In terms of the game, just as we round off on this, Liam, Brozier got the goal. He, he was unlucky to have a brilliant goal ruled out in the first half for, for a high boot, which actually caught the uh, the Millwall defender Bennett in the face and he went off looking very, very groggy. But it was one of those, was the head low, was the boot high. Uh, who else apart from Brozier caught the eye? I thought Lewis Bate in, in midfield was particularly good. Totally agree. That was my first time really closely watching Lewis Bate and uh, he was playing at the base of midfield the latest in a long line of very small very technically gifted left-footed midfielders that Chelsea have produced since Josh McEachern and uh, he's he's really fast actually uh, he spent most of the game kind of making intelligent passes in tight spaces from a deep line position but then in the last sort of 20 30 minutes he started running past people as well and you saw that he's got that ability to to actually go vertical as well as passing side to side I was really impressed with him uh, and uh, it wasn't maybe Tino Andrian's like, most outstanding night. He still had his good moments, and I thought Broger was, aside from his goal, a, a constant menace. He he works really, really hard, and he almost has this kind of Diego Costa type ability to sort of bundle his way into chances as well as being very good technically. Yeah, he's big and strong too. Uh, the under-23s, by the way, in action in the league on Monday night as we record against Everton. So we'll let you know how they got on on Wednesday's bonus show. Uh, OK, we're nearly out of time for this week, but before we go, let's meet another cult hero. So with Liverpool looming, this week's cult hero is a man who played for both clubs. Raul Morelles, the Portuguese midfielder and tattoo enthusiast, joined the Blues from the Reds for £12 million in 2011. Surprise move at the time came after Chelsea had been unsuccessful in their attempts to prize Luka Modric away from Spurs. And Morelles stayed at Stamford Bridge for just one full season, though 2011-12, not a bad one to pick. He left with FA Cup and Champions League winners' medals, though he was one of the famous four suspended for the European final. A stopgap signing in, in many ways, Liam. He still made a significant contribution in that campaign. Six goals, uh, including one against Benfica in the in the quarterfinals of the Champions League, which as a former Porto player, he, he seemed to quite enjoy in front of those Benfica yeah. supporters. The ultimate scorer of great goals over a great goal scorer. He, he didn't seem to shoot anywhere inside 25 yards, but he had an incredible ability to find the top corner when he did. Um, I re- my memory of that goal is that it's one of the most egregious examples of not passing to men who were much better positioned in modern Chelsea history. But you can't complain when, when it goes in like that. And the ball actually made a very similar noise uh, or the net made a similar noise to the, the goal Erling Haaland scored against PSG, that sort of metallic rasper. 
that was probably his defining moment, but he had a couple of other really nice goals for Chelsea as well, including one against Man City when Chelsea beat them at Stamford Bridge. A, a really weird career because it, he, he submitted that transfer request to Liverpool on deadline day. He, apparent, I didn't even realise until I looked this up, he'd won PFA Fans Player of the Year in his only season at Liverpool. He wasn't even Liverpool's Player of the Year because yeah. Lucas Leiver won that. And Absolutely he's, he's a crazy. flow midfielder, so <laughs> bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. crazy. Maybe fans warmed to the, his ability to score from anywhere. But yeah, and, and he said he joined Chelsea specifically for Villas-Boas who was then promptly sacked. Uh, He's the only person who would have done that, I would have thought, at that yeah. time as well. He was certainly one of the AVB loyalists right to the end. But then when Di Matteo took over, you know, he, he, he remained totally committed and had big moments under him as well. And he's one of the ones we don't remember quite as much, got booked to the new camp and was suspended for the final as a result. But he played a big role in that in that Champions League run. Mm. I called him a stopgap signing, Dom. That's sort of damning with faint praise. But actually, they, those kind of transfers can work out well for everybody at times. Yeah, I guess so. Look, he, he, he did a job. Um, he was almost a sweetener for AVB at that, at that period. Um, I think even then, AVB was probably looking for allies. And, and Chelsea saw that... that you know, Moraes could could do something for them um, in and out in and out of the team. They did actually make a loss on him, which is unusual for a Chelsea transfer. They bought him for twelve and sold him for eight. But um, yeah, he, look, the fact that he played his part in in helping that team. That Benfica goal was Munich. probably worth four million, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, at the very least. Um, remarkable character as I suspect that people you're going to refer to that the, the tweet out there for the, the, the Portuguese sure show am. yeah yeah so so he, he leaves Chelsea a few games into the 2012-13 season as I say goes to Fenerbahce till he retired in 2016 uh, last year he made headlines for an absolutely woeful performance on one of those dreadful lip sync challenge TV shows uh, here's a clip of him performing the song O Corpo e Que Paga on the Portuguese version of said show can't see it listener but trust us his dancing is it's not good this is great podcast content <laughs> <laughs> but uh, for those who claim wikipedia by the way to be a credible source of information it says on morales page that the performance drew critical acclaim um, <laughs> it was critical yeah yeah it, it did not draw much acclaim um tattoos dancing benfica baiting aside is there anything else we can say has to be the most tattooed player in chelsea's history i don't oh, know anyone really? else who comes close Great haircuts. Mohican, was he ever made? Yeah, he did, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just remember him as being slightly off the wall. Um, but in some ways, the fact that he was so unpredictable helped Chelsea. In, in, the, in the position he was playing, he was that probably made him more of a menace for opponents. And yeah, the scorer of great goals. And maybe one of the shortest Chelsea careers of any player will cover in this series, I think. But bizarrely, also one that's glittering in terms of yeah. silverware which is odd in itself what a, you're right what a hell of a season to to pick if you're going to have one season as a Chelsea player <laughs> and to miss out on one of the finals yeah and only came off the bench uh, relatively late on in the FA Cup final that is Raul Morales this week's cult hero we'll have another same time uh, next week that's just about it for this edition of Straight Out of Cobham What's on the agenda for the next few days then, chaps? Dom, Dom are you um, thinking about Liverpool or are you just looking at London more broadly for the uh, for the next week? Weirdly, I'm, I might be looking at Austria. <laughs> oh yeah, that, that was going to be my second guess. <laughs> um, I suspect that uh, we'll all be getting involved in some kind of appreciation of Carlo Ancelotti in, uh, later, at some point in the week. Yeah. 
But um, yeah, I, I don't quite know which country I'm going to be doing that in <laughs> as yet. Um, Liam, we've got the Liverpool game, obviously. As I mentioned, we'll talk about Everton a bit on Wednesday. But but interesting that Carlo Ancelotti, unless there's some appeal that we haven't heard about, is not going to be in the opposition dugout on uh, on Sunday after getting sent off after Everton's draw with Man United yesterday. That's, yeah, that's a shame. Notorious firebrand Carlo <laughs> Ancelotti. Yeah, that, that that that's an interesting one. But we'll still be doing a long a long read. Um, myself and Simon and Dom will will most likely pitch on that as well on his time at Chelsea and kind of how things ended. And, and How's his... he viewed by supporters, do you think? I think he might be the most beloved former manager at this stage. I don't know, might be wrong on that. Sorry. Who would you think? Certainly not Mourinho now. No, no absolutely. No. Maybe Conte? Maybe Conte? Di Matteo for the Champions League, yeah. possibly. He would, yeah. There would chance up for him. Di Matteo's got the, the player legend angle yeah. as well. But in terms of a, a pure manager, I think there was a, a huge amount of affection for Ancelotti right up until the end. And a lot of people at Stamford Bridge felt really bad about the way his his departure was handled. God, that was a that was a memory driving driving out. I think I'd hit Egberth Drive in uh, <laughs> in Liverpool on that last afternoon at, at Everton um, when the news filtered through that he actually had been sacked. And he was flying back to London. I think he took the players out. Once he got, they took home, him out. I they think they took him out. Yeah, yeah. He was, I, he was great to cover. He wasn't the most quotable of managers, but his eyebrow alone was was, <laughs> was worthy of copy. But, um, but yeah, he did a wonderful job in that first season, and and then the, it became known as the, the prolonged bad moment in the second season when things just unravelled sort of around late November, early December, I think. Mm. Don't forget, we'll be back with a special bonus pod on Wednesday, looking back on the FA Cup fifth round tie against Liverpool. And we'll also look ahead to Everton on Sunday on that show too. Also, remember that as an Athletic subscriber, you can get an ad-free version of the show by listening to it via the Athletic app. From Dom, from Liam and from myself, thanks for your company. See you back here Wednesday. Mm-hmm.